Um, thanks, yeah. <clears throat> Morning, all. Um, Megan Adam White, welcome home. It's wonderful to see you guys. You can get a free cappuccino. You've been away long enough. Um, they are, they are long-lost uh, and much-loved members of our church who've been in England for how long now? Years and years. Um, it's, it's nice to see them. But uh, how's the new year going? Uh, happy new year. I'm looking forward to 2020 already because that'll be easier to say than 2019. Um, but yes, hoping it's a great year, right? How are your new year's resolutions going? Fine. No, well, you made it to like the 5th of January, so you're doing better than most people. I've never seen so many people running on the road as I saw this morning uh, heading into church. What might that have to do with, I wonder? Um, apparently, the rule is if you do any exercise in the first week of the year, you then have to do that exact same amount of exercise every week for the rest of the year. Otherwise, you're just hypocritical and flaky. Uh, so good luck with that. Um, we, are, we, we love the beginning of a new year. I know a lot of people get quite uh, excited about the beginning of a new year. There's loads of hope. Um, but that's not necessarily everyone's experience. Some of you, it seems like half our church is still on holiday, but some of you might have come back from holiday actually feeling a little disconnected um, from, from normal life. That can sometimes be a slightly unusual experience when you come back from holiday and go, oh, wow, actually there's all this normal stuff that has to be done and it can feel a little depressing if that's you. Uh, I understand. Some of you might have got your holiday exactly right, really mature. You balance the amount of rest with the amount of fun uh, and you are like an energizer bunny full of talent and vision and inspiration for the year and you are nauseating to the rest of us. <laughs> but congratulations uh, for getting that right. Uh, some of you might just be looking back at 2018 going, well, it can't be worse than that, um, which is depressing as it might be maybe the cause for your hope for this year. Um, I'm not sure where you're at, but here's the thing. Hope is what we need more than anything else, and hope is one of the most dangerous, highly risky currencies on earth. The Bible says that hope, when it's deferred, makes your heart sick. And what do you have if your heart is sick? If you are having to live half-hearted, hard-hearted, broken-hearted, it's about as bad as it can be. So hope in the right things is great. Hope in something that's going to let you down, hope in something that's going to not reward that hope is incredibly dangerous stuff. That's why so many people just choose it's safer not to hope, right? It's rather just easier to live bland without much hope. Um, and so where you're going to put your hope is one of the biggest decisions you're going to make. It's one of the most important things for you to get right. Live hopeless, sucks. Hope in the wrong thing, highly dangerous. Figure out what the right thing to hope in is and hope consistently in that, and now we're getting somewhere. So what we're going to spend the next six weeks of the year doing is analyzing what exactly we should be hoping for, who should we be hoping in, what should the quality and content of that hope look like if we're going to get where we want to get to, if we're going to see what we're hoping to see happen in our lives happen this year. Uh, that's, the, that's the plan. So we're going to be studying the story of Exodus. It's just the most glorious Story. It's the story that everything else in the Bible is built on. Um, we have this thing in Bible studying called foreshadowing. It's got nothing to do with makeup, uh, so you guys can zone back in. Um, and foreshadowing is this idea. Here's basically how it goes. Whenever God does something big and impressive, he hints at it a bunch of times beforehand. He lets you know. He, he paints some of the picture of how he's going to do it so that when it happens... If we've paid attention to the, to the story as it was told before, we will understand more fully what he's really doing when he does it once and for all. So it's like he, he hints at it cyclically. He does versions of the story over and over again, and it would be greatly to our prophet to study those times when God rehearsed the story so that when we then look at the time that he did it for real, we don't miss anything. 
An example, as we were discussing at Christmas, uh, would be that Jesus came and said he was the lamb that was slain on behalf of the world, right? So Jesus died this sacrificial death. So in foreshadowing of that sacrificial death that Jesus died, little pure innocent animals, block your ears, uh, all you animal lovers, um, died on behalf of guilty sinful people. So time after time, God tells the story of what's going to happen to his son through what happens to these little lambs. And as you pay attention to how that sacrificial system works, as you see the foreshadowing of something innocent dying on behalf of something guilty, you then don't miss what goes on when Jesus arrives. It's how those shepherds, whose job it was actually to rear the sheep that got sacrificed in the temple, were able to clock it when Jesus gets born and they go, oh, behold, the lamb born to be slain on behalf of all of us. So that's one simple example, but this happens loads of times. And the reason I'm banging on about all this theology is that Exodus and Moses, I think it's pretty clear to say, is the most accurate, most helpful metaphor, the most clear bit of foreshadowing that God does to explain your experience of salvation. So if you're not a Christian yet, if you're looking in, I understand that salvation word can sometimes sound a little condescending. Who am I to say you need saving? It's not me saying that, and and you're welcome to just keep watching and paying attention for as long as you'd like. But if you have crossed a line of faith at some point, if you're a Christian, uh, and if you say that you did need saving and Jesus saved you, then the story of your life, the plan God has for you, the process he wants to take you on, is going to look very similar to the process that he took the Israelites on in the story of Exodus. And what Moses did for the people of Israel in loads of fascinating ways helps us to understand what Jesus has done for us and then how we can live as his representatives on earth. So, I mean, just think about it. Moses famously gets put in a little floating basket because all the firstborns of Israel are, going to, are being executed, murdered in, in Egypt. Uh, he floats along in the basket, gets saved from being killed by an evil governor. Same thing happens to Jesus, right? Was about to get killed as a little guy, gets saved. Not just to be saved, but in order to deliver others. Um, he then goes and goes off into the wilderness, comes from his palatial upbringing where he was uh, considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter, so raised as a prince, shuns all that royalty, shuns all that glorious luxury that he had, goes to be identified with his people who are in slavery. Sound a bit like Jesus, but the people don't recognize him and want anything to do with him. Sound a bit like Jesus. So then he has to go off into the wilderness and come back and continue to try and lead a bunch of people who don't necessarily like him and takes them from a place of slavery into a place of promise and freedom. The process of getting from Egypt to the promised land, though, is a whole fascinating story of these people having to learn how to trust God, learn how to take on giants and enemies, learn how to rely on him for provision. I can't stress it enough. This story is your story. If you're going to look at Exodus with eyes open to see the metaphors and analogies, you will learn principles for what it is God wants to do with your life. So before we do anything else and even study Exodus, I want you to try and do some self-reflection, right? So if this is true, if the Exodus story is your story, that means that every one of you has an Egypt, has a place of slavery, has a pharaoh in your life trying to keep you captive to some stuff. Every single one of us has that. It's probably a composite set of things that want to keep us trapped and enslaved and not who we really are. And that Egypt, for many of us, has probably become quite familiar in some ways, possibly quite comfortable. Some of that slavery might even have, through this terrible lie that Satan does, become a little bit part of your identity. This is who I am. That's just part of who I am. Don't, don't touch that. That's me. But you have an Egypt. And then if the story is true, it also means that you have a promised land, that every single one of you has something God is trying to call you towards, somewhere where you'll be free, somewhere where you'll be able to glorify him to the utmost, somewhere where you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. 
And every one of us has a journey between those two with some foes we have to take on and some stuff we have to deal with in ourselves as we go from thinking of ourselves as orphans and slaves and poor to starting to think of ourselves as sons and daughters of the Most High God who are free. And so what I want you to try to imagine, if that analogy is to work, is what is my Egypt? What is the stuff you're in right now that you're captive to that you don't actually need to be captive to that you shouldn't, shouldn't be under the dominion of? What insecurity, what jealousy, what addiction, what anger, what shame is holding you in a place that's actually not legitimate for where you're supposed to be? But Egypt has got you caught there. What fear? And then what does your promised land look like? What is the thing God is calling you to? What is the stuff that you think, well, this year I'm going after that. I'm sick of one day maybe, should have, could have. That's what God has for me and I want that. And if you can try and get those two things clear in your mind, and you might be struggling towards that, but if you can go, okay, well, there's this stuff that has definitely got to go, and I think that might be the thing God's calling me to. If you get those clear in your mind, then as we go through the story, uh, the analogy, you'll be able to grab hold of it and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, as opposed to me having to try and guess what yours might be and, and keep on making the links for you. Is that okay? So what's my Egypt? What am I going towards? What's my spiritual goal for this year? What do I think God's called me to? Okay, so with that in the back of your mind, let's come to the story. Israel's in Egypt, a whole nation in slavery. But it didn't start out that way, right? If you remember, Joseph of Technicolor, Dreamcoat fame, good musical about him, um, goes to Egypt in the midst of a drought, and amazing stuff happens, and the whole family of, of Israel comes with him. Uh, and he becomes prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Does brilliantly. Joseph averts a drought, well, lets the whole nation survive the drought. Uh, and so the Israelites are given great land in Egypt, an area called Goshen, really uh, fertile, and so they do really well. They're starting to prosper, multiply. But then a few generations go by, no one remembers Joseph anymore. The reputation of that one man, that one leader, isn't enough to keep them safe. And a Pharaoh or two later, they're starting to worry about Israel. These guys are numerous, they're powerful, there seems to be uh, some blessing on them, and so they decide to enslave them, to keep themselves safe. Um, and so the whole nation gets forced to work, whipped and chased and abused. So much so that you'd think that they'd start to dwindle, but in fact they continue to multiply and do really well. And so Pharaoh even gets to a point where he starts telling the Jewish midwives to kill the firstborn son. Every time they deliver a, a firstborn son, the Jewish midwives will have nothing to do with that. So then Pharaoh starts to step in and try to actually put these children to death himself, which is when the floating basket and the bulrushes happens and all that cool stuff. Uh, and Moses avoids being put to death. And he grows up inside the palace as a prince, but looks at his people and sees how they're being treated, and he decides he wants to identify with them. Um, and so he goes to them, and they want nothing to do with him, as I said, so he heads off into the wilderness to become a shepherd. Really unimpressive job to have. Um, and so think about it. Years have gone by where nothing good has happened for the Israelites. Years have gone by where no one's really heard God do anything. The one guy who tried to do something about it, Moses, goes in, gets his hands burnt. Ah, oh, flip, this doesn't work. Heads off into the wilderness. And then this incredible encounter. I mean, it's just beautiful. The gentleness of God, the majesty. Uh, Moses is walking in the wilderness with his sheep, notices a bush on fire, but the bush is still green and not being consumed by the fire. And he creeps up towards it and he realizes he's in the presence of God. And he's terrified because it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. He takes his sandals off, he creeps up towards the bush. And God, who could have been a big bully, who could have been terrifying, speaks to Moses, Moses in these incredibly gentle ways. 
um, there's a moment in this conversation where he actually gives Moses his, his private personal name, Yahweh. No, none of the previous patriarchs had been told God's personal name, but Moses gets to hear it. And it's like, I mean, you'll, you'll see Moses is so ridiculously slow to take the job that God is trying to give him. No, please, no, please. And God, so patient with him. But anyway, this is the conversation that God has with Moses. In Exodus 3, it'll be behind me and you can follow along. Uh, then the Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of my people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And then there's this excruciating back and forth. No, not me. No, but it won't work for this reason. No, what about this? No, what about that? And God patiently takes Moses through all that stuff. No, he has my solution to that. No, here's what you can tell them my name is. No, here's how they'll know that you sent, I sent you. To the point where eventually Moses just has to admit, look, for no good reason, I just don't want to do it. Like, please pick someone else. And God is still so patient and eventually wins Moses over and says, okay, you're going to be my guy. You're going to represent me and your brother Aaron can go along with you and do more of the speaking because you say you're not so good at speaking. Uh, and so Moses gets his head around going to a slave nation as some former wishy-washy palace guy who is now claiming to be their big leader. And he's going to go there, win them over, and then incite them to civil war against the world's superpower. And so he's nervous, right? Uh, and there's this epic moment where God says to him, what's in your hands? And, um, and Moses is a shepherd, and so he would have had a very average stick, uh, longer than this one with a crook on the top, but just made of wood. This is a stick that my dad gave me when I was little. There's nothing particularly special about it, um, except that I once off was offered $50 for it, and I refused it, and now I think that was a dumb decision. Um, but, um, but, but God says, what's in your hand? And so Moses goes, well, my little agricultural implement, right? What could be less impressive? And God goes, throw it on the ground. And you know the story. It turns into a snake, and then he's able to pick the snake up by the tail, and it turns back into a stick. And God says, this, amongst some other miracles, is going to convince people that I've sent you. And so then listen to the way the stick gets referred to in Exodus 40, verse 20. So Moses has been convinced, right? And so, so Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and headed back to the land of Egypt. In his hand, he carried... Hollywood trailer voice, the staff of God. Not just the random shepherd stick. What do you have in your hand? Well, this. And then God says, God, I can work with that. And from that moment on, that stick was going to be stretched out over the Nile and was going to turn into blood. That stick was going to part the Red Sea. That stick was going to strike a rock and water was going to come out in the wilderness. That stick, when Moses was on a mountain and they were fighting the Amalekites, had to be held up and then the Israelites would win. That staff of God turned out, I mean, it started, it was just an ordinary piece of wood. So first practical thing, what's in your hand? Is that maybe the wallet of God in your hand? Is that maybe the lounge of God at your house? Could that be the mouth of God when you speak? Could that be the relationships that God has, the relationships you have, could those be the inroads of God into people's hearts? Could that be the car of God? Could that be the business of God? Not just something Moses had that God might or might not use. Not just, well, I've got this stuff and maybe God will use me. No, no, it's his stuff. It's the staff of God. 
I find that quite cool. And it's worth thinking about. If I'm trying to work out, well, what's my Egypt and what's my promised land and how do I get from one to the other? Well, what's in your hand? And could you have been seeing it as just some random natural implement? And God's going, I'll have that. I can work with that. And don't just call it a shepherd's staff from now on. That's the staff of God. Let's go back through that Exodus 3 passage that I've just read to you. So Moses has saddled up his donkey. He heads back to his people. Now he has to relate to them what God has said. And I mean, did you notice how it ended? These big promises, these big wonderful things God says he's going to do, and then it finishes with, now you go and do it. Every big promise of God, the next line is, you go and do something. There's no, no sort of automatic, this just happens without your involvement. So Moses has to go and convey this message. So let's go through it line by line and see what God was really saying. He started by saying, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. God is aware of your suffering. Did you know that? That God is not aloof, that he's not got some great big blind spot, that he sees it, that he's aware of it. And even more interestingly, God is drawn to need. God is drawn to need. God sees suffering, he feels it, and he's drawn towards it. But here's the big thing. Jesus would help us understand this more fully when he started explaining it. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Realizing your need, realizing your insufficiency, not your all-sufficiency, not, oh, I've got this under control, it's just a flesh wound, I'll fix it myself, I'll get myself back into decent shape and then I'll go back to church. Oh God, don't worry, you need to help so-and-so, they really need you, I've, I've got this under control. No, 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 those who realize their need of him, those who are poor in spirit, those are the ones that God wants to bless, those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. In another place, Jesus says in Luke 5, I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. First step towards getting out of Egypt and getting into your promised land is figuring out what your Egypt is and then working out that you cannot get out of it. It's not going to happen. Oh, well, I've tried and tried, but this year I'll really try. You can't do it. You are incapable of fixing yourself. You have need, massive need. You are spiritually bankrupt. You are morally hopeless. You can't fix yourself. And God loves it when we recognize our need of him, when we realize our spiritual poverty, and he's drawn towards need. He's drawn towards suffering. And that's just, I know you're nodding along. You're like, yeah, yeah. That's the opposite of the way the world works. The world, the world rewards Impressiveness. The world rewards being good-looking, being successful, having it all together, hiding your shame, hiding your weaknesses, putting a good face forward. And if you do find some issue to own it and say, I've, got, you know, I've, got a, I've read a book and I've got a plan, that's not how it works with God. Self-sufficiency is abhorrent to God. He sees need and he loves to move towards need when we realize our need of him, when we realize I'm in Egypt in this thing and I'm not going to fix it by myself. Let me put this another way to help you see it. You may not be brilliant at noticing your own need, right? We are the ultimate con men. Your blind spot is exactly that. It's your blind spot. We are so good at conning ourselves and say, oh, well, it's not a big deal, and oh, I'll get that sorted. I'll get that under control. And we love to compare ourselves to others, right? So you may not be great at noticing your own need, but think about the person sitting next to you, like your spouse. You're probably an expert on what they need God to do in their life. 
You've probably decided exactly what it is that God needs to fix in their character or in their whatever. And you might be emotionally intelligent enough not to always tell them uh, what you think. But, you know, there's this thing. You look around church and you go, I'm so glad they're here. You know, they really need to be here. Like, stop looking at them. Look at yourself. You need to be here. There is a blessing for you when you recognize your need. The kingdom of God is yours when you recognize your spiritual poverty. But we're so good at spotting it in others. There's this crazy stat. There's always one, apparently you guys call it a Paul stat, or some of you do. They may or may not be true. But um, there's, this, there's a stat that human beings, um, we are, I don't know what it is, like low, I don't know, let's call it 100% better at keeping the medicines that are supposed to be given to our pets, giving them all their medicines at the right time and finishing the course. We are 100% better at doing it for our pets than we are at doing it for ourselves. You don't finish your medicine properly, you forget it one day, you, you know, well, Antibiotic has kind of worked, and so who, what did the doctors really know? Like, all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to people you're responsible for, your children, your animals, whatever else, then you're really good at noticing their need and meeting their need properly and taking responsibility for them. We con ourselves. Oh, I'll be fine. Oh, I'll fix it. No, you won't. No, you can't. And when you recognize your need, when you see your spiritual poverty, that makes God go, yes, now you've worked out that I'm God and you're not and you need me, and he loves to move towards need. It's what made Paul the apostle boast in his weakness. When he worked this out, and he recognized when Jesus told him that his strength is made perfect in weakness, Paul then started to boast in his own weakness. And so this is great because this qualifies me for the grace of God. And every time I say I'm fine, I'm disqualifying myself from the grace of God. So enjoy the fact that you have need. Work that out. See it. Ask God to help you figure out your blind spots. He's drawn towards need. Right, we've made that point well enough, I think. So let's move on. The next thing um, that God has to say is that he has come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. This is the superpower of the day. No one beats the Egyptians. Certainly not the little enslaved, ragtag collection of Israelites who live within their borders, who are expected to now rise up and take on Pharaoh and set themselves free. You can imagine Moses going back to the people and the people going like, come on, it's Egypt. You can't beat that. Surely, it's just ridiculous. And so what's going to happen, the first reaction when we start to work out what our Egypt is, what the thing we need to escape from, the first thought that comes into your mind is, well, that can't be beaten. That's just been around too long. I'm not going to change that. That relationship is just too far gone. It's too awkward. There's just no way that can be fixed. That addiction, I tried and I had the this and I used the that program and like, it just won't be beaten. Well, you may be scared of it, but God wasn't scared of Egypt. You may think it's too big, but God didn't think Egypt was too big. The superpower of the day is not intimidating to your God. And that's part of what we worry about when we recognize our need, when we really admit that there's something wrong, is that then we're saying something has to be done about it, and that thing's just too big and too scary, I'd rather not talk about it. But God goes, the superpower of the day, who has you in chains, no big deal for me. I will take you, ragtag collection of people. I'm not going to swoop in and do it. I'm going to take you, and you're going to beat them and leave. And in fact, as you go, you're going to take stuff from them. They're going to bless you and give them, you're going to strip their wealth as you go. And this is crazy fighting talk. So the thing in your life that needs to end, the thing in your life that needs to be beaten, the thing in your life that's been around forever that you've given up hope on is not bigger than Egypt and is not intimidating to God. And here's the thing that happens. So initially, Pharaoh behaves like any superpower would. Ah, whatever, I've never heard of this God of the Israelites. I'm not interested. So then having made their appeal, Moses has to now make good on some threats. And so these plagues come through, loads of them, hectic plagues in Egypt. Eventually, Pharaoh starts to admit, okay, this 
this God of the Israelites means business. And so then what he wants to do is bargain with Moses. Don't be surprised. Please hear this. Don't be surprised if the things in your life that you want to defeat, when they no longer seem insurmountable, will then start to trick you into compromise. The things that in your life that you need to defeat, when you finally have the courage to believe God can break this thing and you start making some inroads, they will then change their tactic and try to make you compromise. So Pharaoh's okay eventually with the idea of Israel going a few days out into the wilderness and worshiping God there. And he likes the idea that if they're there, then they're going to come back. So he says, right, fine, your men can go and do this worshiping of God that you say you want to do. But leave your kids and your wives and your households behind. And Moses won't be drawn into that compromise. He says, no, we're all going. And Pharaoh understands what I'm starting to learn as the father of a small child. And he's like, well, Flip, if you want to take your babies out into the wilderness, God really will have to be with you. That's actually in the Bible. That's not just me being a bad parent. Um, and, and Moses goes, no, we, we're all going. Not just some of us, we're all going. All of us, our old and infirm, our little ones, the whole lot. Pharaoh doesn't like the sound of that, but then later after a few more prayers, he goes, okay, fine, you can all go, but leave your livestock behind. Because Pharaoh understands, firstly, you say you're serious about God, you say you want to f- fight for your promised land this year, that's fine, but, but the comfort of your family, like let's not let it inconvenience your family. Guys, in this neighborhood, it's the idol, isn't it? of the upper highway area, the comfort and safety and security of our families. Unfortunately, we're not looking for some kind of hybrid spirituality. You're in Egypt, dead, slaves, or you're in Christ, moving towards the promised land. There are no hybrids. And Moses understood, if I leave my family where they're comfortable and I don't let this touch them too much, and maybe just us blokes will go and try and do something spiritual, it wasn't going to be long before they were back in slavery. So Pharaoh recognizes, fine, they're going to take their families, but if I can keep their business interests here, if I can keep their assets here, if I can keep their way of doing commerce here, it won't be long before they're back. And Moses goes, we're all in. We're all in. All of us are going. He says, not a hoof will be left behind. All of our livestock, all of our families, as huge as this risk is, taking all of this asset out into the wilderness where it could all die, leaving no bets hedged, no compromise. And that is what the giants in your life that you need to slay will do. They will intimidate and then they will try to compromise with you and try and trick you and deal with you. But God has come to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, not to bargain with Egypt, but to set you free from Egypt. And he goes on to say, I'm going to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. So here's a cool thing. Here's an interesting little bit of psychological news for you, right? Negative motivation never works. It doesn't have long-term fruit. Now, what do I mean by negative motivation? Negative motivation is I want to avoid that horrible thing. Positive motivation is I want to get that lovely thing. Negative motivation always wears off. Positive motivation keeps you going. Human beings will never consistently choose something that they don't think is going to make them more happy. Human beings are hopeless at getting that right, so often they're choosing things that they think will make them happy and it makes them less happy. But in the moments of choosing, you do the thing that you believe is going to make you happy. And so if you expect people to go through any suffering, push through any discomfort, take on anything that you'd rather not take on, negative motivation won't be enough because there'll come a point when the unpleasant but familiar starts to look a little happier than the scary unfamiliar, even if it's going to get you somewhere good. It's a little psychological talk. Does it sort of make sense? Here's an example. When you took your driver's license, if any of you here can drive, um, that is just the most 
terrifying experience, isn't it? Learning how to drive. It's just, not driving is so much nicer than driving badly. And the clutch pedal is like this weird snake that wants to bite you the whole time and you're stalling everywhere and there's that embarrassing red L on the back window and people are driving up behind you and gesticulating at you. It's just dreadful. And then you have to go and do this test where you find some official looking person in a uniform and they sit next to you with a clipboard and they just judge you. And you're driving this big vehicle that suddenly doesn't make sense and there are all these other people on the road. It's like, you're all looking like it was totally fine. Um, But if you were to go back and put yourself in that moment again, it is grueling. Learning how to drive and passing a driver's test is about as scary as it can be. And many of you, I know, had to take that test more than once, but we won't ask you to put your hand up uh, this morning and admit to that. But I mean, why would you go through that? Why would you want so much to go through all that pain? We do it not just because asking mom for lifts is unpleasant, because asking mom for lifts is not that bad. She pays for the petrol and she doesn't sit next to me with a clipboard and a peaked cap judging me for the way I work. No, the reason you go through all of that is for the independence and the glory of being able to take to the open road yourself and walk into the shop swinging keys by your side, going like, I'm an adult now, I've made it, right? The picture of independence is so alluring that it's worth going through the struggle to get there. Why am I banging on about all of this stuff that you only look semi-convinced by? God doesn't say, I just want to take you out of Egypt. He knows that's not enough. In fact, he's proved right. In the wilderness and in your life, there were plenty of moments when the Israelites were like, this is hard. Egypt was nicer. That place where there was slavery, where it was brutal. Oh, we prefer it back there. At least we knew how it worked. Let's go back. The thing that's going to keep you moving forward is not just that addiction sucks, that shame sucks, that broken way of living sucks. The thing that will keep you moving forward is if the picture of where you're going is so vivid and attractive that you can't help but get there. And so God says to these guys, there's a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, you're not going to have to grovel in the dust picking leeks and onions and things that they grow in Egypt. No, there's going to be, you can stand up straight and there's going to be plenty. There's going to be lavish abundance that the cows aren't just going to, and the goats aren't going to just make enough milk for themselves, but there'll be extra for you. That the bees aren't only just about going to manage to make things cultivate. No, there's going to be extra for you. It's going to be sweet. It's going to be so incredibly wonderful. There'll be a spacious place. There'll be space for you to really be yourselves to worship God, be satisfied by him, and be a blessing to the world. That has to be so vivid and so clear in your mind that you keep moving forward. The fear of God's punishment, the fear of being stuck in sin, I'm afraid that's just not enough. It's not gonna keep you moving forward. A picture that's vivid and attractive of the goodness of God that you can experience in the land of the living, that thing will keep you moving forward. And until you've asked God to capture your imagination with where he's taking you, you're not going anywhere. Certainly until you've asked God to help you see the dreadfulness of where you are, you're not going anywhere either, but you need both to keep moving. And so he says to the Israelites, there's this land that I have for you, and it's awesome. And over the next few weeks, I'm trusting that for you, you get a a picture that's clear and vivid and attractive that you can write it down. This year, I'm going after this in my life. I want that freedom once and for all. I'm done. And let it become so vivid and so attractive That kind of intimacy with God, that kind of peace with man, that kind of stewarding of my gifts, that kind of experience of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, that kind of relationship with the Bible and seeing the word of God come to life, that kind of using of my gifts in the world, whatever it is that God has in mind for you this year, get it so clear and so vivid that you will keep going when you encounter hardship on the route. Otherwise, at some point you'll go, oh, but slavery was more comfortable, at least I understood it. And I don't want you to miss, as we go back to that Exodus passage, when God starts talking about this land 
that he has in mind for them, this promised land. He's referring to promises that he's made to the patriarchs beforehand. He said before about this land that this is not a new idea. God's saying, I'm going to keep a promise now. That's what he's signaling here to Moses. I made these promises. I'm going to keep them now. And this is something that God loves to do. This is something that in your spiritual growth, you're going to have to get your head around at some point, that God's going to make you some promises, that he has already made you some promises. And one of his favorite ways of dealing with you is when you start to work out what those promises are and live on them and grab hold of them before they necessarily seem to be coming true. It's just one of those things that your father loves to do with you, is to take you on a journey of working out, I'm going to get over the comfort of waiting till things are proven to me, and I'm going to believe this promise, live as if it were true, and allow that to shape the way I experience the world. And then, lo and behold, he is good, and he will make good on his promise. But it starts with this, like, leap of faith. Okay, you said, and I'm going to believe you. Um, I'm going to read you a few promises in in a second, but I want to just help you imagine what this feels like, right? Living on promises. Um, there was a time when I decided I wanted to try and run a little bit. And running is just dreadful, right? I mean, running is horrible. It's a useful way to get away from people. Aside from that, it's just painful. Uh, and so I had to run, uh, and it sucked. And but anyway, I've got to get fit. Or whatever, like. and, um, and then I read this book that explained that actually we were born to run, that human beings are really physically unimpressive on the face of the earth, with one exception. Over a marathon distance, you are better than a horse. Well, maybe not you, actually, but like a fit version of you. Um, we're quite good at long-distance running, and we're actually supposed to enjoy it. Running's supposed to be enjoyable, and you're like, shame, <laughs> this author. Um, but think about it. You never have to tell kids to run. It's all they ever want to do, and they seem to enjoy it while they run. It's like just breathing for them. And at some point, someone puts them in shoes and at some point someone says, now you're supposed to go and run at this time and run to meet this speed and whatever else. And it turns into something ugly. And what this, the point that this guy was making, whether he's right about it or not, is that if you set out to run expecting it to suck, when you start too fast, when you hurt your body, when you start injuring yourself, it won't surprise you because you're expecting it to be like that. So you'll keep doing it. You're expecting it to suck. But if you expected running to be great, and you go out, and you're like, oh, but this is horrible. You'll walk for a bit. You'll change the way you're running. You will approach the whole thing differently because you're expecting it to be nice. And I know this might take a bit of believing for some of you, but if it's true that when I arrive at running expecting it to be nice, I then do things differently, and that actually changes my experience of running. I'm kinder to myself. I take my time. And that's just running. I mean, it's just an arbitrary thing. Could that be kind of how God wants this to work? He's saying, I've promised you certain things. And in most of the stuff that God has promised us, our default setting is to believe the opposite. So we're expecting to see that. So we live as if the opposite were true. God says, take a chance on me. Live as if this stuff was true. It will actually change the way you experience the world. But it's not just positive psychology. God then, as he sees you step towards him, comes towards you and keeps the promise. So here's some examples. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has promised that. Which means, if you have called on the name of the Lord, if you've gone, Jesus, please, I need you to come into my life and be my God and save me from myself and this world. He's done that. And you need to start living like that's true. You'll start to experience the truth of this promise, that he's promised if you call on him, he will answer you. James 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't start with the assumption that God is waiting for you to sort yourself out, that he's bummed with you, giving you the silent treatment. Start with the assumption that as I draw near to him, his heart leaps and he draws near to you. If you start with that assumption, you'll be amazed at how much you start to notice that God is actually doing. 
Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door is open to them. This is a promise that God has made. We live with, as if the opposite's true, but if this is true, how might that change the way you pray and the way you notice what God is up to? The famous Romans 8.28, we know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. If that's true, then he's doing it right now. Working things together, weaving them together, cunningly making it work out for your best. What would it mean to live as if that were true? So interestingly, the Israelites grab hold of what Moses has said eventually, and Moses goes towards Pharaoh and makes his first stab at getting them free. Pharaoh's reaction was actually to double their workload. The initial response was pushback. So they had X number of bricks that they had to make every day. Pharaoh says, right, you have to keep on making the same number of bricks, but I'm not giving you straw anymore. You have to go and find the straw yourself to mix with the mud or whatever. All the Israelites get angry with, no, not Pharaoh. They all get angry with Moses. Who are you to raise our hopes like this? The first thing that happens after you start trying to get us out of this slavery is that Pharaoh is nasty to us. And what they say is, we want to please them. We want to appease our slave masters so they treat us better. The whole journey from that moment on is not actually about getting Israel out of Egypt. It's about getting Egypt out of the Israelites. God has to take them on this journey to unpick this idea that I need to appease my earthly masters, that I need to somehow make a deal with the devil here, that I need to just keep things safe and keep things comfortable. He had to take them on this journey to turn them into a nation who thought that we are not just poor slaves alone in the world. No, we're adopted children. We're loved. We're a nation that has the right to claim its own land and fight for its own land. That process of rewiring their identity was the real work that God had to do. The same is going to be true for you. Getting you out of your Egypt, not hard for God. Getting your Egypt out of you, getting your wrong ways of thinking, getting your attempts to look after your comfort or appease your earthly masters or whatever it meant inside your identity, that you think you're some kind of slave, that you think you need to earn God's approval, that you, whatever, need to fear what other people say about you. The ways you think like an orphan and a slave are the things that God really wants to go to work on you on. And so the issue to begin with was not getting them out of Egypt. The issue always was getting Egypt out of them, getting them to start seeing themselves as God's chosen people. And they needed that because the second they head out into the wilderness, as I mentioned, Egypt starts looking really comfortable and really familiar and the new stuff looks quite scary. And you've got to really believe that God loves you and has chosen you if you want to get into your promised land. And so when that kickback had happened um, and the Israelites are all bummed with Moses saying, just let sleeping dogs lie. Our familiar slavery was better than our unfamiliar promise. This is what God had to say to them. And I, I want you to... You should close your eyes and, and almost sort of pray this because here's the thing is that in this year there's some stuff that once and for all needs to be killed and there's some promises that once and for all you need to move towards. And there's some stuff in your hands that is actually the staff of God that you need to start to use. And there's a whole identity that needs to shift and it's gonna happen as you let these words wash over you. So this is what, as you close your eyes, this is what God had to say to the people as they thought, oh, no, 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 we don't wanna hack Egypt off. He says, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. 
Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession, for I am the Lord. And Father, we, as we sit here, we want to affirm that you are the same God today as you were then. Father, you are powerful and mighty and glorious, and the superpowers of this earth are nothing to you. But you love us and you're gentle towards us and you long for us. You want to make us yours. You want to be our God and have us be your people. You're not just mighty and scary. You're tender and you are jealous for us. And inside every one of us, there is some patch of Egypt still left. Somewhere where we're not truly free, somewhere where we still see ourselves as slaves or as second-class citizens, somewhere where we haven't fully recognized who we are some part of your promise that we've not yet claimed because the familiar is more attractive than the unfamiliar promise. And there's some stuff in all of our hands that we still don't see for what it really is. Some resources, some relationships, some gifting, some ability that, that we've allowed to just function as a natural thing and not realize that it could be the staff of God. But Lord, you are calling every single one of the people in this room into deeper, more glorious, more amazing adventures with you as you take them into the promise that you have for them. You've promised each and every one of us some amazing stuff. A place of freedom, a place of love, a place of intimacy with you and an opportunity to worship you. That you want to take us towards holiness. You want to take us towards wholeness. You want to heal us and make us new and you want to not only get glory out of us but use us to glorify yourself in the world. You want to use us to bless people around us. And so I pray, Father, that right now and over the next five weeks coming that, that you would move us as a church and as individuals into a place of being absolutely convinced by your promises, absolutely hungry for the things you have for us and willing to forsake the familiar in order to go after the promise. With courage, with boldness, with con being absolutely convinced that our God is good and just as powerful as he was then. In Jesus' name, amen.